Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 16 is, I think now, a very difficult text to, to preach on. The, the purpose of preaching is always to communicate God's Word. Specifically here, we focus on expositional preaching, which we would just say is preaching and what it's supposed to be. And when someone preaches expositionally, basically what that means is every word that the preacher says is controlled by the text that you're studying. So the purpose and the point of the text has to be the purpose and the point of the sermon. So you can't take some Bible verses then and pull them out of context and make them say something that you want to say or make them something more palatable or something that might fit the occasion. You've got to figure out what the Word of God is saying, and then how to communicate what the Word of God is saying to people. So, this is a really difficult text because it's not just a stand-alone text. It's in a context. It's in the middle of an argument that if you've been here, you've been tracking with us, but I'll review. But it's in the middle of an argument that Solomon is making. So, if you just take these verses out of context, and I read many sermons this week that, that did that, and you can just do a sermon on injustice or oppression or envy or laziness or loneliness, because all of those themes are in this passage. But again, Solomon is writing these words here after something and before something as part of a, a larger argument. And so, as I read through that and finally understood it this week, my first thought was, that's not going to preach well. But, I feel constrained and enslaved to the text. So we're going to work through it. We started... The second section of this book of Ecclesiastes, you can divide it into four sections. That's what I would recommend doing. We started the second section last week. Uh, that section spans chapters 3, 4, and 5. So we're right in the middle of that today. We started that section, you remember, by fast-forwarding and looking at the end of the section so we knew and could keep in mind the destination the author has. So let me read those verses to you again, 18, 19, and 20 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. So let me pause. So if you were to jump ahead like we just did and read the conclusion of this section at the end of chapter 5, 
Solomon is saying, enjoy your life. Now, if you were to go back and look at any point, really, within the previous verses, it would sound totally disconnected to you. Because many of the things that Solomon says and faces are depressing realities. Which is why it's important to track with the argument that he is making so that when you get to the end of chapter 5, we understand how it's possible to actually do this and to enjoy our life. Verse 19 of chapter 5. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God for... He will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That is where Solomon is headed. Remember that. That is where Solomon is headed. For the believer, if you're a Christian here today, for the believer, it is good and fitting for you to find enjoyment in all of life because... All of your life, every meaningful and mundane moment is a gift from God. Your life, think of it this way, your life with all of its moments and circumstances, your life is an utterly unique lot that God has given you and no one else, the good, the bad, all of it. It's a unique lot that God has given you and he calls you and wants you to accept that and not just accept that, rejoice in it. To rejoice in it. So this morning, Solomon deals with the reality that sometimes God's plan does not look good. He's told us everything is a part of God's plan and God's plan is beautiful. Everything is beautiful in its time. But the reality is, Solomon knows this better than anyone, sometimes God's plan does not look beautiful. Sometimes God's plan does not look good. So he deals with that objection. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we come to you by the Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, to ask for help. Help me to preach well. Help all of us to listen well. In Jesus name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't own a Bible, you will find today's text on page 356. Remember, the author of Ecclesiastes is the great King Solomon. He is also self-titled the professor. He's writing about 3,000 years ago, probably as an old man. And he writes about his journey from hating life to enjoying life. And as we have discovered, this is an honest book for honest people. 
So it's an honest book. His words take a very realistic look at life in this world. And for those interested, not everyone's interested, but for those who are interested and willing to face those honest realities in this life, this book, this book is for them. So here are chapters one and two in a nutshell. We're at chapter three now in the middle of it, but here are chapters one and two in a nutshell. On the one hand, on the one hand, Solomon has said all of life is vanity and full of weariness. He has said all of life under the sun is vanity, and so true joy cannot be found here. I mean, temporal contentment, maybe. Superficial happiness, maybe. Detached or distracted peace of mind, maybe. But no deep, lasting, honest joy can be found here. Which is why Solomon, for so many years, hated his life. Because of that reality. He hated his life. Because he knew that everything, all of life under the sun is vanity. And true joy cannot be found here. So on the one hand, he said that. And he will continue to say that. But on the other hand, he has said, God gives joy to his children. God gives joy to the the one who pleases him. God gives joy to his children as they remember his might and his goodness. So again, on the one hand, all of life is vanity and joy cannot be found here. And then on the other hand, God gives his children joy. Is that a contradiction? It's not. All of what Solomon says, of course, is true. All of life is vanity. It's full of weariness. Life is difficult. You know this. Life is difficult. It's hard. It is full of sorrow and trial and tribulation. And yet, life can be enjoyed as a gift from God. Solomon himself is the testimony. He went from hating his life to the enjoyment of his life. Enjoyment. Here again is what Solomon says at the end of this section. The very last verse. I read it before. Let me say it again. Verse 20. He, this is a believer. The he is a believer, I think, at the end of his life. Will not much remember the days of his life. That is the hard days of his life. Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That does not mean that for the believer, he magically forgets how hard his days were. Or he magically forgets the tragedies in his life. But I think, I think it means that he will look back and not be consumed with sorrow. He will look back with joy. 
Sorrow will be swallowed up by joy. Joy will tip the scale. Because he's occupied. God has occupied ultimately his heart with joy. Next in chapter 3, the professor moved on to the ground beneath that enjoyment of life. If life is that vain, what's the question? How is it possible? If life is really that hard, and it is, then how is it possible for us to enjoy this life as a gift? And let me just say that here is what his answer was not. So life is difficult and hard and vain. How do I enjoy this life? His answer was not that when I reached the point of enjoying my life, it was because God removed all the vanity and the sorrow and the hardship. That's not the argument. The argument is not that once you become a Christian... Say goodbye to hardship. Say goodbye to... There's Christians laughing around you right now. Did you just see that? They're laughing because they know that's not true. Now, hopefully they would tell you they have more joy now than they did before, but many of them will tell you life got more difficult. Got harder. More sorrow. It is a lie to tell someone who is not a Christian that becoming a Christian means health and wealth and good fortune. Prosperity. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The gift of the gospel is Jesus. You get Jesus. In the middle of the unhealth and the unwealth. And things not going the way that you want them to go. No matter what. So that wasn't what he said. So what is the ground, Solomon? What is the ground beneath the enjoyment of your life? Here was his answer. It was in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, which we looked at last week. First, God is in control of the world. Christian suffering, Christian in trial and tribulation, Christian in hardship. Remember, Solomon is saying, here's what I needed to... Discover and remember, God is in control of this world. Everything is a part of God's plan. We saw this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, where Solomon declared there was a determined time by God, a determined time and season for everything. And then he said this in verse 14 and 15. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. It's part of God's plan. Everything. That was the first ground beneath His enjoyment of life. And then second, not only is everything a part of God's plan, God's plan is beautiful. God's plan is beautiful. God's plan is good. God's plan is perfect. Perfect. Here's what he said in 3 verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
Now, here is the problem Solomon addresses next in our text today. Starting in chapter 3, verse 16, and all the way through chapter 4. Here is the problem he addresses. The plan doesn't look beautiful. The plan doesn't seem beautiful. We are, remember, we are under the loom. We are under the loom. We can't see the beautiful tapestry from above and and how everything works together. We scan his works in vain. We sometimes see just all the snarls and knots underneath the tapestry from God's perspective and from our perspective, eventually beauty. But what about right now? This is an honest book. But what about right now? Okay, I get eventually, eventually, yes, God's plan is beautiful. And from God's perspective, he sees how it all fits together. God's plan is beautiful. But what about now? And we ask questions like this or say things like this. I don't understand. I don't understand this. Why is this happening to me? How is this beautiful? How is this good? How could this awful thing in my life right now somehow fit together in God's good plan for my life? How could a good God be in control of this world? Look around you. This doesn't look to me like everything is a part of God's plan. And if everything is a part of God's plan that is happening around me, then I doubt his plan is good. I mean, come on, those are the objections. You have a pulse, right? You have feelings, right? You have emotions, right? You don't bury them, right? You face them, right? We say these kinds of things in our mind. We, we wonder these kinds of questions. We have these kinds of struggles. So Solomon is going to bring up four observations, four terrible realities that he sees as he looks out into the world. And I think what the professor is doing is anticipating our objections to God's sovereignty and goodness. That's that's how this fits. So we've got to fit it where it fits. I think that's how it fits, that he's making this argument for Joy and in the enjoyment of life and everything is a part of God's plan. Remember that Christian and God's plan is good Christian. But then he knows and anticipates the objections to that. And so he's going to bring up four of them. He knows that what he has just said, everything is a part of God's beautiful plan, is seemingly contradicted by observation. This is the wisest man ever to live. He gets it. 
He knows things around us seem to contradict. So what does he do? He brings them up. And not only does Solomon bring them up, he gives some responses. But I appreciate this the most. That we'll see. Here's what I appreciate the most about how Solomon brings up these four problems, these observations, these objections. He doesn't make up questions. I'm sorry, he doesn't make up answers to questions that he doesn't have answers to. So I think you'll see. He's going to give some responses. But there's going to be a lot of loose ends. You're not going to have a, a, a nice, neat, tidy box with all the answers you need to face and deal with these harsh realities and then put a bow on it and walk out with four steps to contentment. And remember, if Solomon doesn't have ultimate answers to some of these questions, who would? The Bible says never has there been a man more wise than Solomon. And Solomon's going to commiserate with us a bit. And say, yeah, these are problems. These are struggles. These are issues. I'm there with you. And he'll give us direction that is not the satisfying answers we might want. So, here they are and then we will work through them one at a time. Injustice, oppression, envy, and laziness, and aloneness. Those four things are significant obstacles to believing that God's plan is beautiful. Maybe they're the most significant. And they are significant obstacles to the enjoyment of life. So let's begin reading in chapter 3, verse 16. Let's look at the first one, injustice. There's seven verses here, verses 16 through 22. He's going to make the observation in verse 16. Then he's going to give... Two comments in verse 18 and then in verses uh, 17 and verses 18 through 21. And then he gives a little conclusion in verse 22. And this is all about the injustice he sees in the world. Verse 16. Moreover, I saw, saw, so this is his first observation. I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. There's the observation. Where there should be justice, there is wickedness. Where there should be righteousness, there is wickedness. It's what the psalmist is talking about in chapter 58, verse 1 and 2. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? And he's talking about rulers, those in authority. Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. Injustice. So much injustice. Lack of fairness in the world. And every one of us knows this. People not getting what they deserve. And people getting what they don't deserve. 
injustice. You experience this at work when you're overlooked for the promotion that you're clearly more qualified for. You experience this in your family through favoritism. You read about this in the news. Injustice is rampant and there's something in us that hates it. Especially when it comes our way. Especially when it comes our way. Abraham, he said in Genesis 18, 25, where he was making an appeal to God not to destroy Sodom because there wasn't, he thought, only wicked people there. And you can't destroy the righteous people there. And so he said, crying out for justice, far be it from you, God, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So there he's crying out. For justice, he sees possible injustice and he does like we do. He's crying out for justice and he's crying out that God would be the one to ensure justice. So he makes two comments now. Here's the first one in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. Here's what he's saying. Injustice is not an argument against the sovereignty of God or his good plan because all injustice will be dealt with by God. Every bit. Nothing, think about this, nothing will go ultimately unpunished. No wicked thing. No wicked thing will go ultimately unpunished. Even for you, Christian. Your wickedness did not go unpunished because you are not punished for it. But rather, Jesus was punished in your place. Why? Because God is just. Justice is delayed in some cases, but never forgotten. Nothing will be swept under the carpet, which is good news. And so we rejoice. We rejoice, don't we, when justice is served? We rejoice when the bad guy is caught. When the golden gate, golden state, I forget what he was called, this serial killer. When he was caught over here in Citrus Heights, you said, yes. You were thankful. You were grateful. Because he deserved to be caught and held accountable. So Solomon reminds us here that in the end, in the end, justice will be served. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is wrestling with injustice, namely the wicked prospering. While the righteous suffer. He says that's not fair. David says that's not fair. But then he remembers something. And listen to what cheers his heart. Beginning in verse 16. So he's, he's seeing wicked people prosper. And he's seeing righteous people suffer. He's upset by this. And then when I thought how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task. Until. I went into the sanctuary of God and then discerned their end. 
Truly, you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Yes. Is what David says. Yes. All injustice will be punished. So that's his first comment on injustice in the world. And then in verses 18 through 21, he makes a second comment, and it's interesting. God will judge in the end. That's what verse 17 makes clear. But still we ask, don't we, why the delay? Why? Why allow the injustice now? Why not prevent more of the injustice now? And there's an argument to follow. God's not indifferent to it. That's the point that verse 17 makes. He's going to judge all of it. Why the delay? And we see here in these verses that it reveals something. So he lets this injustice go for a season to reveal the character of sinful man. That's what he says here. Read the verses with me, beginning in verse 18. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves, themselves, that is, apart from God's grace, man, themselves, are but beasts. Animals. Animals. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so does the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Here's what Michael Eaton says about these verses in his commentary. Equally, he, the author Solomon, maintains that the injustice of men fulfills at least one aspect of the purpose of God. It provides all this injustice. It provides a massive demonstration on the stage of history of our ignorance regarding our own nature and destiny. God is not indifferent to injustice. For the present, it is an under-the-sun monstrosity which reveals the essential character of fallen man. This injustice is revealing how sinful man is and how in need of salvation he is. He'll say two other times in this book. In chapter 7, verse 29, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes, that is, wicked plans. Or chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And that is made clear by all the injustice. And now here is his conclusion to this part in verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him. That should be our attitude. In spite of all the injustice, 
He brings us back to the foundation of those first 15 verses of chapter 3. That God is in control. His plan is good. Everything serves a purpose. And so seek to enjoy life. That's injustice. Now Solomon moves on to another obstacle. The problem of oppression. Look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Here is oppression. The strong exploiting the weak. The powerful over the poor. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. That is the oppressed. They're often alone. As if it's not bad enough to be oppressed. There's no one to comfort them. They're alone. Which he'll return to. How bad is this oppression? How bad is it to see this oppression and to really understand the wickedness of this oppression? Listen to Solomon in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Here's how bad it is. And I thought, The dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He says oppression is so bad. It is so unbearable. Better to die be dead and not see the oppression anymore. And then he says this, even better is to have not yet been born. Why is it better to have not yet been born? And what does he say? Because they haven't even seen the evil deeds. He's making a point. How wicked oppression is. How difficult oppression is. How can oppression be a part of God's Beautiful plan. Now Solomon gives no response to this. With some of the others here, he has a a response. He did with injustice. There's no response here. I, I don't think Solomon has one. These oppressions are inexplicable. Often. Inexplicable. It would be silly for him to make up some sort of answer. We mourn, we pray, we help, we trust God. I used to feel pressure to answer the difficult questions. I don't so much anymore. But I used to feel this pressure to answer those why. I don't understand. How can this be happening? How can this be a part of God's plan? How could God let this happen? Solomon doesn't have a response. And you and I usually don't know the answers in detail to those kinds of questions. But the oppression is bad. The cruelty is bad. I have two apps on my phone that help me 
keep in touch with this. I find it easy to lose sight of oppression. I find it easy to lose sight of just how wicked and hard and cruel the world can be. And I got these two little apps. One is called Voice of the Martyrs. Voice of the Martyrs has an app, and every day they give you a little bit of information about a persecuted group of Christians in the world. Sometimes there's a picture, sometimes there's a story. And it is helpful to connect me with oppression. Another one is called Operation World. And it talks about an unreached people group. And usually they're being oppressed as Christians by family, by friends, and by government. And I find that I need those things. I don't want those things, but I need those things so that I can stay in touch with what Solomon is talking about here. With the difficulties that he is talking about here. You live in a world filled with oppression. And we're tempted to look at the injustice and we're tempted to look at the oppression and say, how is that part of a beautiful plan? Two more, we'll move through them very quickly. The next one is in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. This is envy and laziness. So you may not think are that big a deal, but the Bible treats these very seriously. Verse 4, Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work, that's a good thing, come from a man's envy of his neighbor. That's a bad thing. This also is vanity and a striving after win. So here's a good thing he mentions here. Hard work. Hard work is an excellent thing, but it's often motivated by a wicked motive, envy. I want. I want what you have. And that's why I work the way I work. And that's why I work as hard as I work. Because underneath it, often, there's an ugly motivation. And it's envy. So this hard work is a good thing planted in that case in wicked soil. Proverbs 6.34, for jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. But there's another side to this coin. There's the hard work motivated by wicked envy, but then there are those who don't work because they are lazy. We joke about laziness, I think. We tease one another about laziness. We may joke about ourselves, oh, I'm just being lazy. I just want you to know, and I do that too, but I just, I want you to know that the Bible takes laziness very seriously. Like it's not funny in the Bible. It's, it's not funny. It's never laughed at. There's never a joke about laziness in the Bible. It's dealt with severely in God's word. And laziness as seen is seen in God's word as totally wicked. 
Verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's a gruesome picture. That's nasty. Here's what he's saying. He's so lazy. He doesn't work. And so he doesn't feed himself. Work is all, it's always linked to feeding yourself and feeding others. So we have to work. So he doesn't work. He's so lazy. He doesn't work. So he can't feed himself. So then what happens typically for that lazy? Other people will come and feed him. Other people will come and feed him until they just get tired of feeding him. And then this person would rather eat themselves than work. They'd rather die. There is a degree of laziness where you would rather die and waste away than put yourself to good hard work. And Solomon is saying this is rampant. I look out and I see it. And I ask myself when I see this envy and this wickedness, this laziness, how can this be a part of God's beautiful plan? Second Thessalonians three, six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Can you imagine if we did that? Stay. So you got your church. And you have your brothers and sisters in your church, fellow Christians. that's saying, hey, figure out who the idle ones are, who the lazy ones are and confront them. That's assumed that they're not changing. Stay away from them. Avoid them. Don't laugh about it. Don't make a joke. It's wicked. And now Solomon moves on with an alternative. Verse six, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So so one one hand with quietness is between envy, which is both hands grasping for everything and anything. It's between that and laziness that is not putting hands to anything. Here's a better alternative. One hand of quietness, one handful of quietness. And now finally. And I think this is where the first three are heading, the injustice, the oppression, the envy, the laziness. Here's the last observation. Aloneness. Or loneliness. This is a problem. He mentioned it in chapter four, verse one, when he said, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. He said it twice. He's filled with sorrow over that. He's saddened by that. Not only are they oppressed, if that wasn't bad enough, there's no one there to comfort them. They're alone. Verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure 
This also is vanity and an unhappy business. And now here in verses 9 through 12, here's why that is so sad. Here's why aloneness is so sad. When sometimes we bring it on ourselves, that's what he's talking about in verse 8. There's the oppressed who have no one there to comfort him. That they're not bringing loneliness on themselves. Then in verse 8, there's the one who's so consumed with their work that that's why they have no one. But either way, here's what's so sad about that. Here's the blessing of companionship. Verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Companionship is one of the ways that we cope with this difficult life. For Christians, those brothers and sisters that you are united to, that you are in fellowship with in a local church. God uses them to hold you up. God uses them to bear your burdens. God uses them to help you. Two are better than one. And then finally, Solomon ends this chapter with an illustration. I think he brings just about all of these into this illustration. This this story of a a man who starts off poor and unknown and replaces a foolish king, but then that poor, wise man who became king, he eventually is forgotten too. Solomon looks at all of this and says, really? Is this plan beautiful? Is this plan good? Verse 13. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he, that's the poor wise youth, went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. In conclusion... There we have it. Four observations from Solomon. Four objections commonly raised against God's sovereignty and His goodness. You say God is sovereign. You say He's in control. That everything is a part of His plan. You say that His plan is beautiful in its time. You say His plan is good. What about all the injustice in the world? What about all the oppression? What about the envy and the laziness? What about the loneliness? And for some of us, some of those are out there. And they're our own observations. And for some of us, that is our experience. What about the injustice I've suffered? What about the oppression I've suffered? 
What about my loneliness? What about my aloneness? And you say that all of this is a part of God's plan? And that his plan is good? I don't see it. And so he's offered some help in these verses, but no solutions. Did you catch that? I don't know about you. The problems are still there. He didn't wave someone that made him go away. He didn't give some all satisfying answer that now keeps me from experiencing the brunt of these things. He offered some help. He says that God will be judge in the end. Three verse 17 told us to focus on enjoying your work in three verse 22. It's good. He said in four verse six that one hand of quietness is better than two hands grasping for more. That's good. That's helpful. He said in chapter four, verse nine, that two are better than one. These are helpful things that Solomon has to say, but the problems still are not solved. So everything's a part of God's plan. God's plan is good. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It doesn't seem beautiful. Because of the injustice, the oppression, the envy, the laziness. The loneliness. So here's what Solomon says, I think. Here's how he responds. In these verses, when we look out and raise our objections and our struggles, I think Solomon's response is, I know. I know. I see what you see. Let me bring them up. I'm not going to pretend that it's not difficult. I'm not going to pretend that once you know God, all the injustice disappears and you're immune and you're insulated. And Solomon comes alongside and raises the objections with us and says, I know. I just had someone this week ask me that question. Why? Someone in our church in the middle of a tragedy an absolute tragedy. And they're voicing out loud with emotion. Why is God doing this? How does this fit in his plan? How can this possibly be for my good? Now, friends, here's how you answer that question. Okay, you ready? You've got your paper and your pen. When someone asks you that question, why, why, why? This is what you say. I don't know. I don't know. And please don't just quote Romans 8.28 to them. That's true. And give it to him in time. For I know that in all things, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. 
You know I would never downplay that verse, and we bring that verse up probably more than any other verse, but don't have that be the first thing that comes out of your mouth, please. I don't know. I have no idea how this possibly all fits together. And then you tell them what you know when the timing is right. But I know that God is good. And I know He does all things well. And I know that from what God's Word says. And I know that from what He has done in my life over and over and over again. Friends, this is faith. It's just not how God works. He doesn't just, when you're suffering in the middle of it, put a DVD in of your life in 20 years. And then you watch it and say, oh, that's, I get it. It wouldn't help anyway. It's faith. So God comes to us through his word and through Solomon and says, I'm not going to pretend that these problems don't exist. I'm not going to pretend that these problems aren't, aren't crushing you and shattering you. I'm not going to pretend that I have the answers for how all of this works together. But here is what I absolutely 100% know. I know that God is good. And I know that his plans are perfect. And I know that his plans are beautiful. And then you mourn with that person and you suffer with that person and you pray with that person and you do anything you can to help that person. And you walk with them and encourage them that God is good and he does all things well. So last thing. Maybe it would be helpful for you to consider the life of Joseph. You remember the life of Joseph? When I think that things are not going well and my life is hard, I always remember that my brother never sold me into slavery. (laughs) I haven't been left for dead in the bottom of a pit yet. So when it's bad and it's hard, for me, some of you have had worse experiences than that maybe. But for me, I can look at that and say, okay, thank you, God, for all you've delivered me from. But think about Joseph's life. He finds himself at the bottom of a pit left for dead. He finds himself enslaved. At one point, he finds himself in prison. He thinks he's going to get out. He's betrayed. He's left in prison. Now, finally, finally, At the very end of his life, here is Joseph, and he's like second in command of all of Egypt. There's a famine. Egypt is the only place with the resources. So his brothers, right, and his dad end up coming to him. They don't know it's him. They think he's long dead. Remember, they end up coming to him. They realize who he is. They're scared. They assume they're going to be put to death. And do you remember in chapter 50 of verse 20 what Joseph said to them? He said, listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God does everything beautiful in its time. Joseph connected the dots. 
He wouldn't have been able to save his brothers if they hadn't left him for dead in a pit. He says, he doesn't let them off the hook. You meant it for evil. And you did it, and you were responsible, and you were free in your choice, and no one was pulling any strings here, and you hated me, and you wanted me dead, and that's why you did it. You meant it for evil, but there was another hand allowing you to do that, and his intentions were good. Now, don't tell me that Joseph was dying in the bottom of that pit, saying to himself, I can totally see how this all is going to work out for good. Of course I'm in a pit. Of course I'm in jail. Where else would I be? Because then this and then this and then Potiphar and his wife. And then there's no, he, there's no way he could scan God's works and figure it out like that. But in retrospect, he knew exactly what Solomon knew, that God makes everything beautiful in its time. And so it's a battle of faith. Isn't it? It's the hard work, the hard fight of faith to trust in in the middle of a world full of trial and tribulation to face it. And to still, by God's grace, enjoy this life, remembering that everything is a part of God's plan. And that God's plan is good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Would you help us, Lord, with our own hearts and and when we handle the hearts of others to to be sensitive, to draw alongside one another as we cope and deal with the difficulties in this life. And then, Lord, by your gift, to find enjoyment as you remind us that You have not left your throne, not even for a second. That there is not a single maverick molecule, that everything is under your control. And that your plan, though it is difficult at times, and though we suffer, that your plan is good. And you do all things well. Help us, God, minister that to our own heart by your Holy Spirit. Help us to minister that to one another's hearts, we pray.